Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, financial meltdown or a new road to recovery? We look to the future to see what the rest of 2022 holds for the global economy. It's been the worst start to a year for financial markets since the Great Depression. That's what some analysts say. Low growth, teetering on recession and high inflation mean the global economy could be set for a period of stagflation when growth slows or reverses while prices increase. After decades of stable prices, the world's richest nations are grappling with record inflation levels. In the UK and the United States, living costs are the highest they've been for 40 years. In Europe, inflation is the hottest since the creation of the euro in 1999. Rampant price rises have been triggered by a series of economic shocks. The COVID-19 crisis, severe disruption to trade flows from China and the conflict in Ukraine. And of course, the rising cost of energy, up 70% so far in 2022, is affecting everything from production to consumption. Commodities, including precious metals, sugar and coffee, are up nearly 30%. From developed economies to emerging, most stock markets are down over 15%, and that's just so far in 2022. Capital destruction, the amount of money wiped off the value of investments, stands at more than $9 trillion globally. That beats the financial crisis of 2008. Central bankers have been forced into action, raising interest rates at varying pace. But what might investors do next? And will things get worse in 2022 before they get better? That's where we are. But where's the global economy headed? Here with me now are the Managing Director of the World Economic Forum, Sadia Zahidi, and the former chair of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, Lord Jim O'Neill. Two people I love talking to because you've always got some great insight and get the conversation going. But I'm going to start with you, Sadia, if, if I may. We've got inflation, stagflation, deglobalization. Just what is happening with the global economy? I think the short answer is that um, we don't necessarily have a crystal ball, but we can probably make some fairly accurate predictions about where things are headed. We asked 50 of the world's top chief economists to tell us what they think is going to be happening, and hopefully they are the predictors of where things are headed. Most of them are deeply concerned about a slowdown in growth, but about a month ago, which is when we surveyed them, they were not yet thinking recession. They are extremely concerned about rising inflation, and they are extremely concerned about a pattern that may not lead necessarily to deglobalization, but enough of an internal focus across economies that prices will continue to rise further, and especially developing economies will be deeply affected by not necessarily having the same means of growth that they've had before. That's in a nutshell what we took away from the chief economist's outlook. Now, it wasn't so long ago that everyone was talking about this inflation being transitory. Um, Jim, do, do, do you chime in with what Sadia has to say? Yeah, to some degree, um, but let me expand on Sadia's uh, Sonia's theme. You know, the start of the year, even before the Russian invasion, I looked at all the issues that seemed to be around, and I concluded that I can't remember a time in close to 40 years of thinking about this stuff where 
even the issues we knew about, I wasn't sure what the outcome was going to be. And then you got the Russian invasion on top, which, by the way, I didn't expect. And so I, I, my real answer to you is I haven't the slightest idea what's going to happen. And I would be pretty dubious about anybody that claims that they did with confidence, because as we're seeing, and just looking at the bond markets after a horrific first half of the year, they're showing signs of reversing as they change their, their implicit view about what central banks are going to do, which I'm sure we'll come back to. But I think we have some big, big, big uncertainties with possible different outcomes, including on inflation. And I'm trying to be open-minded on the specifics of the, you know, the popular issue of recession or not. We're probably not far off being in a recession in most Western economies already. Uh, China, hopefully, looks like it's coming out of a, another short, self-induced period of negative growth. And that should help others, given how important China is for the world, including places like Germany that are probably now very weak. But a lot depends, of course, on COVID here in the UK. We're having a huge rise in infections yet again out of nowhere. And of course, the Russian issue and all the price issues that go with it. Never mind all the various policy uh, paths that could happen with central banks and governments. So I haven't got a clue. <laughs> but it's not boring. And Sadio, we're hearing there, keep an open mind. But should we be focusing on those three R's, recession, rates and Russia? So I think uh, the job of a lot of economic policymakers is to ensure that we are able to provide more stability across the global economy. That does require looking at those three R's, as you've, you've called them. And that does require policymakers to be thinking about short-term crisis management, um, making wise decisions that hopefully provide the stability that allow, allows businesses to invest, that allows for people to be able to put food on the table, that allows for good wages and good jobs. But there is a longer term piece as well. And I think that is where some of the focus does need to go. We could stay in short term crisis management and lose sight of the bigger picture as to where the future growth will come from. What are the new markets that we need to invest in? What are the post pandemic recovery plans that were being thought of towards late 2021 and even the early part of 2022? How do we get back to that kind of investment and that kind of focus, especially in those areas where it's very clear that we don't have good societal resilience, whether that is food, whether that's health systems, whether that's education systems, there has to be a focus on the long-term, otherwise we're going to stay in a vicious cycle of short-term crisis. So in terms of that focus on the long-term, Jim, the action that central banks have taken so far, what do you make of that? Yeah, one of, one of the most successful macro hedge fund managers that ever existed once said to me, the only thing you know about central banks is that they're going to change the view at some point. And I think that's very prescient in the current environment where there, there is a lot of uh, uncertainty. And central banks will do whatever they think is the right thing at the moment in time. I think the absolute key thing is to try to keep long-term inflation expectations uh, from not rising on the back of these huge rises in energy and food prices. And I suspect that's what the Fed, through all the various different uh, smoke signals, is probably really watching, and it should be what they're watching. But I'll add the second thing to complicate the matter. I, I think cent you know, Western central banks especially, but probably it percolates the whole world, 
I've been far too much uh, struggling with with what is essentially groupthink. We, you know, in probably in the US, in the UK, and in the Euro area, we probably should today have interest rates one to two percent, if not more, higher than where they are. They, they, they've stuck with QE for far too long. Sadia, these are challenging times. These are volatile times. What kind of mix of policies do you think we need? That's where I'd, I'd um, say the same as what Jim said in his um, first answer. I, I, I don't think we know. I think there have to be some experiments, but a, a basic set of principles. There has to be a better balance between the short and the long term. I think we should be talking a lot more about fiscal policy, not only monetary policy. We should be thinking about where those future investments from the private sector are currently going. How much of this is, um, you know, further financialization of the profits of businesses and how much of this is actually going towards future productivity, future investments that are going to lead to the kinds of innovation that we're going to need um, later on. And I think there are some countries that are, of course, um, still even through this current uncertainty, focusing very much on the strategies that they laid out, for example, in terms of greener growth and um, using green technologies and green investments to drive their future growth. But I do think there has to be an equal focus on the social side of things and having a lot less of the handout mentality when it comes to um, investments in care or education or health and much more thinking of these also as areas for social infrastructure development and new sources of growth and jobs and revenue and putting us back on a more virtuous cycle. So it's really interesting what you're talking about, a more organic and quite a collaborative way of approaching structural change. Um, Jim, you of course came up with the term BRIC, so Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. I mean, what do you make of the economic approach that we've seen at the latest BRICS summit in Beijing? I guess it'll stick on my forehead forever, that acronym. <laughs> yeah. um, just before, I, I want to just, uh, I was nodding my head with what Sadia yeah. said. You know, I uh, find myself becoming a bit of a campaigner almost for a whole new approach to conventional fiscal policy, including trying to persuade the IMF to have a real rethink about what has been the central post-war Second World War consensus. We need to, uh, and, the, and the whole response in health investment is what's really specifically drove me, but more broadly, whether it's climate change or more inclusive growth, growth, and the fact that investment is just so persistently weak all over the Western world, we need to have almost perhaps an entirely new way of accounting for government spending. And in many departments around countries, to split it transparently between what is investment spending and what is consumption or maintenance spending, which is very unconventional by post-World War II standards. But unless we start thinking that way, we're never going to get out of this reoccurring mess because what happens is when markets worry about uh, inflation or excessive whatever, governments end up cutting investment spending, which is what we need to grow our supply side and productivity. On the question about the BRICS, even though it stamps on my forehead, and uh, if I hadn't thought of the acronym, there would be no BRICS political club. I am yet to see a time where these guys have an annual meeting where they actually say anything that ever means anything other than symbolism, to be really blunt with you. You know, I tease a lot of them because obviously I've got to know them all 
reasonably well. The, their own economic growth performance, both individually and collectively, effectively peaked the year they first decided to meet as a club. And they, they really need to think seriously about what are they meeting for, other than to highlight the fact they're a club that doesn't involve the US. Uh, and and, the, and the, the idea that they're bringing in Iran and Argentina, you know, what is the rationale for that? What is the credible basis for doing that? Sergio, I wonder what you think about this. Do you think that BRICS is just a back-slapping exercise, just, just symbolic? I mean, what's your take on what happened at their summit compared to the G7 meeting in Germany, for example? You know, I would say clubs aside, G7 or BRICS or G20 or um, any other um, grouping, I think for every country on on its own, um, especially for some of these larger economies, whether they are advanced economies or emerging markets, there has to be this better focus between the current crisis-driven mentality and those longer-term investments. And then there are areas which could lead to, especially from the larger economies, both BRICS countries and G7 economies. Um, that could lead to much more value for others within their region, smaller economies, and bringing back a focus on trade and investment and the kind of globalization that actually can be very helpful and has, to some extent, contributed to lifting a billion people out of poverty in the last 30 years. So um, taking the best of what we know from the past and marrying that with the wisdoms that are now emerging around the better way um, to do some of this and having a better balance of both responsibilities and the returns that are generated from globalization, I think that has to be a key part of the focus, regardless of whether it's the G7 or the BRICS. Let's pause the conversation, but hold that thought. We'll be back. Stay with us. because still to come on the agenda. It's not all doom and gloom. We'll find out what financial positives our guests are hoping for this year. Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. Welcome back to The Agenda. And we can continue now with our look ahead to what might be in store for the world economy. Still with me are the Managing Director of the World Economic Forum, Saadia Zahidi, and the former Chair of Goldman Sachs Asset Management, Lord Jim O'Neill. We're still stuck in a supply chain crisis. Food prices are soaring. There's a, a real cost of living crisis across the globe. Energy prices are, are increasing. How can that really be tackled? I mean, is the only option for, for world leaders and the world powers to come together? Yes. Uh, I think that's very much what we work on um, at the World Economic Forum. Public-private collaboration across borders um, and having cooperation ahead of differences because that's what we're going to need for the future of humanity. That's what we're going to need for the future of the planet. And there may be areas, I think, especially when it comes to climate, where some of that cooperation can be taken forward. But now, as you pointed out, food crisis, again, that is another area where I think we should be able to put differences aside and focus much more on um, the kind of cooperation that will help address these issues. Let me give you one quick um, stat from uh, the, the work that we did with those various chief economists a month ago. Across advanced economies, only about 23% uh, uh, disagree that uh, food price subsidies will be needed to offset consumer price increases. So it's advanced economies, and 40% fully agree that these subsidies will be needed. When it comes to developing economies, only 14% are uncertain. 
over 85% believe that these subsidies are going to be needed. Now, that's a short-term response, but in the longer term, if we want to have more food security for the world, especially in the face of a climate crisis, where the nature of where and how we can do agriculture is changing, well, we have the technologies, we have the possibility of global cooperation, and it should be front and center to the responsibility that leaders have to their own citizens and to global citizens when it comes to simply being able to put food on the table. So this has to be another area where we should be able to cooperate. So, Jim, if the world is going to fall into recession, it doesn't sound like it's going to be a soft landing. I mean, it, I, you know, I, the theme of this discussion for me, who knows? I do, if I try to turn a little bit more optimistic, famous last words, <laughs> one I'm about to say, it does seem to me we don't have the same structural excesses that were blatantly obviously there in 08, or certain, definitely not the same degree. And so I don't think a global recession necessarily needs to be particularly deep and bothersome. What I personally think is some of these issues that keep coming back are so deep-seated and because of the, the, the challenge of global food security and global climate and global health, it feels to me as though we've got a decade or so of a lot of volatility surrounding economic growth. And in that sense, I'm in the camp that a lot of things are, unfortunately, quite reminiscent of the 1970s, uh, when I first started vaguely being old enough to think about this kind of stuff. A bit, a bit before eight, the 80s is really when I started working professionally, but uh, uh, I, you know, I was at university studying in the 70s. Well, supposedly studying. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's not clear to me that we're going to be able to solve a lot of these big structural issues anytime soon. And the best that our policymakers can do is not make any of them worse and really try to open their minds and think about how we can do something to raise productivity and introduce true collective reforms and to take the world back to a better form of of true global globalization uh, without having such stark losers, which we haven't really talked about yet, but that's obviously another issue that sits below many of the problems in Western societies today. I do want to come back to those um, stark losers that, that you, that you um, <coughs> hint about there, because that's maybe a whole other, other show, but... You know, yeah, Saudi, probably. Yeah. Saudi, there is a shift taking place, isn't there, away from the old financial order to a new digital transformation. Uh, it's it's going to take action. It's going to take a lot of money, a lot of time, care, regulation and attention, isn't it? Yes, but I, I think it's, it's about a proactive approach to what do we want to use digital technologies for, if that's what you mean by digital architecture. There has to be a lot more focus on, yes, fourth industrial revolution, indeed, but if that is serving um, a few people who are able to afford some of these latest technologies and only providing support and services to the very few, then that's not a very successful fourth industrial revolution. There does need to be a lot more focus on getting some of those technologies for basic um, goods and services. So for example, take education. The edtech industry has existed for some time. It has now gone through a boom in many parts of the world in the last couple of years. Here's an opportunity to ensure that we actually use that set of technologies to help workers reskill, upskill, prepare for the massive job transition that is also coming if some of these structural changes go through. 
that's an opportunity. And unless I think we're thinking big and scale when it comes to some of these technologies, then this is going to remain sort of a, a playground for the very few and not necessarily lead to the results that we'd be hoping for and continue to grow the kind of inequality that already exists with about 3 billion people um, still not even having basic digital connectivity. That's the thing, isn't it? Moving away from it being the playground for the few to it being something that's going to benefit and create positive energy for, for, and growth for the entire economy. Jim, we've got to talk about those losers. I mean, where do we start? Mm -hmm. How about with Manchester United fans? <laughs> I don't speak fluent don't... football, but, you know, come on. <laughs> um, well, as you're probably aware, I mean, here in the UK, I'm, I'm quite immersed in my professional life these days on issues to do with this inside the UK, um, so-called Northern Powerhouse and levelling up. And I think in a number of Western uh, developed countries, Below it all and linked to aspects of what we're talking about, there is this strong feeling which has grown dramatically since 08 uh, amongst a lot of um, what would typically be called white working classes that, that the world's treated them pretty badly the past 30 years. Some of it's evidence-based, uh, but interestingly, but not unimportantly, a lot of it is perceptions also. Um, and whatever we can do to, to try and bring back stronger collective growth around the world out of this era of weak growth or whether it's a recession or not, we have got to, we have got to find a way of, of it being more equally shared. Um, you know, if you go to 40,000 feet, you look at this millennium or decade, sorry, or century so far, 22 years of it, we've had seemingly endless profit growth. But we've had really weak private and public sector investment. We've had really weak productivity. We've had really weak real wages. And this huge perception of, of rising inequality in many, many places. And that is pretty scary because it's telling you that capitalism isn't really functioning the way it should do. And uh, linked to many of the issues you've asked us about, that's what the real solutions have got to be. And uh, we can't avoid the mistakes that I was probably partly guilty of in the noughties uh, of just focusing on what mathematically made world GDP better. We need to make sure that those that suffer from uh, other countries coming out of uh, very low levels of income growth into stronger development um, aren't, aren't aren't causing huge consequences for the, uh, for the rest of the world. And it's very difficult, but we've got to make globalization work a lot more inclusively and better. There are so many unknowns. I can see both of you nodding along to each other's responses. I think what I'm taking from this is that ultimately we're all doomed. Um, but let's, uh, let's just end with a final question to, to both of you. Um, what, what's, the positive, what's the most positive thing, do you think, the policymakers could do to make sure that we have an easier ride for the rest of 2022 and beyond? Sadia, I'll start with you. I think because of both the perceived and what is now starting to show through in the data um, in terms of inequality between countries and within countries, there has to be a focus on, let's call it inclusive growth for lack of a better word, let's call it the S of ESG for lack of a better term, um, but it, there has to be a focus on the people agenda. And regardless of whether people are on the left and the right, and that becomes increasingly hard to describe these days, 
But regardless of that, I think the areas where there can be consensus is a focus on good jobs, a focus on the kinds of investments that will create good jobs, and then a orientation towards preparing people for those good jobs, the reskilling, upskilling, renewed education agenda. These are, in my view, the kinds of things that are absolutely necessary, not just in the current environment, but should we be successful at putting together some of those structural changes that are needed? Without this agenda, people are not going to be ready. So globalization of the past versus globalization of the future, current investment, domestic investment policies versus future domestic investment policies, all of that is going to be dependent on having people ready for these changes. Coming up on a future agenda, the scourge of microplastics. Just what can be done to rid the world's oceans of more than five trillion pieces of waste? But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.